Hello, everyone. Welcome to our sixth episode of Europe After Coronavirus, a series of podcasts promoted by Open EU Debate, a Jean Monnet sponsored network. My name is Carlos Carnicero Ravallen. I'm a journalist based in very sunny Brussels this morning. And today we will be talking about the impact that this crisis will have on Europe's capacity to shape world affairs. We have three, we have three great contributors with us. Today's guest editor is Miruna Budnaru Troncota, lecturer at the National University of Political Studies and Public Administration. She's also a member of Open EU Debate. Welcome, Miruna. Hello, everybody from sunny Bucharest. Oh, nice. And thank you for helping us prepare this program. With great pleasure. All right. Ignacio Molina uh, in Madrid, he's also joining us today. Ignacio is senior analyst at Elcano Royal Institute and lecturer in political science at Universidad Autónoma de Madrid. Welcome. Good morning, everyone uh, from uh, rainy Madrid. Uh, very pleased to be to be here with with all of, of with all of you, and and well, uh, it is fascinating to discuss on, on this topic and to contribute to to, to this excellent project of the of, of your podcast that I I follow, uh, and 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 well, uh, very happy to to discuss uh, today with all of you. Fantastic, Nacho. Thank you. Last but not least, I'd like to welcome Antonia Coli Bassano. Chief Operating Officer at Geopolitical Futures and Lecturer on International Relations at the Romanian National University of Political Studies and Public Administration. Antonio's recent research focus area covers demographics and the changes this pandemic is bringing into that area. Welcome, Antonia. Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone uh, from also sunny Bucharest uh, this morning. It's a great pleasure to talk with you about these important topics these days. Okay, great. We're almost covering from the most eastern to western part of the EU, so it's. I think this is excellent. I'm, I'm in Brussels, almost sort of in the not not in the middle, but almost in the middle. So okay, let's move on. Let's start. Um, beyond the human life costs, the medical tragedy and the devastating economic effects uh, of COVID-19. It has also a clear geopolitical side. We're seeing exacerbated tensions between global powers. So in order to understand how Europe is positioning itself in the new map of post-corona international relations, I'd like you first to reflect on where we are coming from. Just before this pandemic arrived, the EU had elections in 2019. And just last December, we saw a new commission coming to power with a very ambitious agenda. The European Commission president, talked about a geopolitical commission. So, Miruna, what's behind this geopolitical ambition that von der Leyen was talking about? Um, it is very interesting that the first woman uh, president of the commission has made uh, this, has branded the commission as being geopolitical. It's a premier, in a way, a double premier. Uh, and of course, many analysts have wondered what she meant by that, because of course, uh, the um, initial uh, political um, plan and political objectives that she announced were not pointing towards a very uh, particular uh, way of being more geopolitical than it was. Of course, from my personal point of view, EU started to um, play a much uh, uh, visible role on the 
global arena after the Treaty of Lisbon. So already in 2009, when the Treaty of Lisbon entered into force, and practically when the EU had for the first time uh, an institution dealing with a particular institution and the head of this institution uh, dealing with its foreign policy and security. Uh, so I believe that the EU started to be geopolitical when it created this position of uh, high, repre high representative of foreign policy and security. Uh, so it's already 10 years. But of course, uh, what uh, the new commission uh, wanted to mark was um, EU's frustration in a way, uh, because EU is a very strong economic uh, power, a leading economic power, we, we could say, uh, and a big market. But on the other hand, and its main resources are not reflected in its, uh, let's say, global role. So uh, I think this uh, ambition is old, but for the first time it was put into words in, in such a uh, straightforward manner. And I think this also comes after Brexit uh, with uh, EU's desire to show that uh, it can still uh, play a relevant role and uh, it can offer uh, a new image, more engaged, especially in its neighborhood, but also in the world. I would say that the most geopolitical and visible role is in EU's neighborhood. And I think that Macron's input with his concept of European sovereignty and uh, this idea that EU should be the guardian of multilateralism as an attack, of course, and as a response to Donald Trump's uh, deny or criticism towards multilateralism, I think these elements coming together in 2019 uh, have um, made uh, the new um, commission president to uh, make such a strong statement. I think in a way it was a prophecy that it was self-fulfilled uh, by the crisis, unfortunately, in a way, because I think that um, uh, it was like a prediction that von der Leyen uh, didn't expect it could uh, happen so early. So on, on paper, the EU has uh, arguably it's a powerful uh, entity uh, to play a key role in world affairs. Uh, but Nacho, we were just talking about how uh, uh, Borrell, uh, the, the high representative in his confirmation hearing, he was saying, wait a minute, the EU has still to learn how to speak the language of power. So Ignacio, what's your reading uh, behind this idea? Well, uh, that's that's interesting because has been mentioned that Ursula von der Leyen is the first woman um, as president of the commission and Morel is the first male as high representative. So, I mean, it's, it's a good combination for the European Union to, to join this idea of oh, language of power at the same time, some kind of idealist liberalism which is in the uh, DNA of, of the European Union. I, I really think that, that, that this, this idea of geopolitical commission and speaking the language of power uh, together was really uh, a, a very, from the strategic point of view, was a very good signal that the, the, the commission in this term was going to take seriously um, that multilateralism, um, well, multilateralism is, 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 is it was, it was under stress, was under stress before the pandemic, and, 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 and that the European Union uh, had to adjust to this new reality. Uh, I, probably uh, our listener uh, will be fine useful if I recall that the, the, um, 15 years ago, more or less, when the, when the European Union uh, approved its first European security strategy, 
the, the, this idea of, of uh, effective multilateralism, in which when you read the strategy, there are uh, great sentences about the, that, that Europe has never been so prosperous, so secure, so free, or that the transatlantic relationship is, is um, replaceable, uh, and that acting together, the European Union and the US uh, can, can be a formidable force for good in the world. Well, if we compare that strategy with the current strategy, the EU global strategy of 2016, now, well, the, 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 the rhetoric has already changed a, a, a lot in, in, in three years ago. Uh, now we the, the European Union is, is is no more talking about about uh, effective multilateralism, but rather uh, pragmatism, principle pragmatism. The idea that the 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 existence of the European Union, of, of, of the, the very existence of the European Union is is questioned, and that the European Union needs to uh, well to be a strengthened in a in a in in a world uh, much less multilateral. And in 2016. Donald Trump was not at the White House, and China was not the current China. Or, or so. Um, how uh, the, the the point the point is that multilateralism, which is I mean the 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 the, the kind of, of of liberal international order that the European Union uh, finds more comfortable, uh, is is really under stress, and there is a. Uh, uh, a clear battle of narratives. Uh, by the way, Joseph Borrell has also referred to this battle of narratives between uh, Russia, between China and the US on 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 on, uh, on the global order, and of course on 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 the effect of the pandemic on the global order. So the the, the point is that the Europe story should be uh, heard uh, loud and clear in in the, in, in, in the words of, of Joseph Borrell. And that we have to take much more seriously the idea of geopolitics and to to use all the tools of the European Union uh, in external actions, which are now not very not very well coordinated, and to have a much more proactive attitude to 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 this. So I, I really think that it, it has been a transition since uh, 2003, the first strategy, 2016, the current strategy, and now the new Commission. So since 2019. And now, in, in in this process of transition of the European Union attitude to the to the current geopolitics, we have the pandemic, and the pandemic is 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 really uh, well is 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 a big stress uh, and that 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 makes the multilateralism uh, collapsing precisely when when is most most needed. So that's that's the, the that's the the context uh, that that we have in the European Union external action before the pandemic. So it was a very uh, already under a stress situation. Uh, and, and now, well, now the the world uh, turned by an escalating confrontation between the US and China and, and how the European Union uh, uh, placed itself in this in this confrontation. So Nacho, you've talked about uh, pr pragmatism. And I want to ask Antonia, if, if, if how do you see uh, the new EU leadership, the new uh, EU institutional machinery. Do you see that in good shape to be a pragmatic power in following what Nacho was saying? Well, first of all, the, the geopolitics of uh, the EU, no matter uh, what institution is promoting it, uh, comes from what society perceives to be uh, the problem of the day, meaning 
Um, yes, institutionally, we see the soft power of Europe that we had in the 90s and early 2000s shaping into a more of an example uh, for power. Um, and that is also because of the test that the European Union had during the 2008 crisis and due to the fear uh, that uh, the European Union uh, may be fragmenting, not necessarily into um, you know, fragments of the bloc, because obviously uh, the EU will stay together as a common market, but, but as a mentally um, necessary uh, goal to have a, a political un union. Uh, so that is, I think, the fear that the institutions need to, to respond. And that was the goal that the Commission set when they said they want a more geopolitical European Union. Now with the pandemic, I think there is um, both an opportunity and a risk. Um, and as we are talking, um, the risk cannot really be calculated because it, it relates to um, actions being taken. Um, and whatever Brussels, whatever the countries are doing to show cohesion will tell us whether the EU is actually a geopolitical power. As for the institutions themselves, um, I believe that they can, as long as the member states want to ensure uh, that there is cohesion. So that's, that's the big question on to making the EU geopolitical relevant in realistic terms. So it's about, I mean, this is not something uh, new. Cohesion, unity, without unity, uh, no matter how many competences the EU can have, you need, you need to have the member states on board. And Miruna, maybe can you reflect on how this pandemic is, whether it's going to help to have more uh, unity in that regard, or uh, I, I would expect that, considering that it's affecting everyone, uh, even though, I mean, of course, not, uh, not all member states have, have the same capability to, to react to the pandemic, but the pandemic is truly global and it's affecting all Europeans. So do you see that as facilitating more unity for, for, to, for action in, in, in foreign affairs? Yes, uh, thank you, Carlos, for this. But I wanted also to connect a little bit with uh, what the others said and to continue with how uh, solidarity will be, in a way, reinvented. Uh, I also wanted to say that practically uh, EU uh, will play uh, a geopolitical role in a European way. And I personally think that this will include more um, a principle of geopolitical cooperation rather than geopolitical competition. Is EU is not the type of actor that could get into this uh, realist, I don't know, great power game. I think uh, EU's st strength is to uh, maintain a European way to deal with great power politics based on EU's capabilities and values. And in a way, um, I think this, uh, this matches uh, very well with what Antonia said. Coming back to solidarity, we have seen that this pandemic has um, um, pro produced what's best and what's worst in uh, many situations. 
state capabilities, member state capabilities have been in many ways challenged and the state weaknesses have been uh, shown to, to have a great uh, importance uh, nowadays because if your healthcare system is not capable to, to face uh, this, uh, this uh, huge challenge, then uh, this has, of course, uh, political consequences and you need help. And I think more than ever, European Union, even though it was a bit slow in reacting towards member states, and that became clear uh, when uh, finally um, uh, President of the Commission von der Leyen uh, apologized to Italy for this late uh, uh, in, uh, late help, let's say. Uh, in the end, I think we have seen a lot of examples of great interstate uh, solidarity. And we have seen a lot of measures, targeted measures of the European Commission, uh, financial help. And I think uh, this uh, really, uh, it's not just about words and narratives and PR for the EU. I think it was uh, real and it was felt by ordinary people who could take um, um, benefit of, of this help. And I believe that this is uh, probably a really wrong moment for uh, some nationalist-oriented leaders or sovereignists uh, inside EU uh, to contest uh, European solidarity, because it is a moment when European solidarity is uh, very visible and it actually uh, saves lives. If I may, if I may to, 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 to add something on what Antonia have just said, uh, I, I much agree that, that the, the, the pandemic, uh, if you think, uh, in a way, uh, has an, uh, underlined the, in the, 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 the principles and guiding the European Union external action have been vindicated by, by, by this crisis. No? The idea of uh, integrated approach to conflicts and the, the need of regional cooperation, the, the absolute relevance of multilateralism and security, resilience. But, but, but the truth is that the European Union has not, uh, has not been a, a real actor uh, so far. Uh, well, perhaps uh, last week uh, there was this, this conference uh, um, organized by the European Union uh, thinking on fragile uh, regions in the in the vicinity of the European Union, but 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 it's clear that China and the United States uh, have been much more vocal, perhaps because both of them are in a confrontation that we try to to handle. But the the, the point is that that uh, only with greater European Union autonomy both um, technological autonomy and industrial autonomy from China and a strategic autonomy from the US or, or more strategic autonomy from the US can guarantee uh, some ability of the European Union to shape the, 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 I mean, the, the international uh, conversation or global, or global governance, if you want that, by the way, we, we don't have. But the danger is that a crisis uh, probably will lead to renationalization of, of resources, uh, including less resources to cooperation, less resources to uh, diplomacy, to defense and security. I mean, I, I'm talking about the member states. Uh, so at the same time that we need a more proactive European Union, a more proactive European uh, member states uh, trying to avoid parochialism and, and fragmentation, probably the crisis uh, may lead to, to on, on the one hand, less resources, and on the other, fragmentation 
because the, the priority in, in, in member states, at least in, in most hit member states, such as Spain or Italy, France, even France, is going to be reconstruction. So looking, looking uh, inward, very domestic approach. So this is a real risk, the risk of, of, uh, of um, not uh, looking to, 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 to what, is happen, what is happening abroad. Uh, introspection in, in, in a way. Yes, uh, and this is a great point because the opportunity comes from what the population of Europe is perceiving to be the realistic views of the European Union. Um, in terms of what the European Union does for the person, the people, uh, but first the person, the community, and then the people. Um, and the risk comes from uh, the fact that being more focused on the population of a community, being more focused on the individual, more than uh, the multilateral union, you have the risk of increased nationalism, uh, which poses the risk of um, fragmentation at the European Union level. So you're absolutely right. It's, it's about perception and what realistically is being done and how it is being perceived by the population, I think. So moving on, at the end of February, the COVID-19 pandemic erupted and changed pretty, pretty much everything, including, of course, world power dynamics. At the heart of the changes we are seeing in geopolitics, the question of where the virus came from and how it was really originated. We've heard President Trump speaking about a Chinese virus. Other contentious elements were questioning if China honored all its obligations to the World Health Organization and their international health regulations. So Miruna, how is China's role in the crisis being perceived by world powers? And what is the geopolitical side of this? Uh, this was the beginning of the narrative war because it was a narrative war um, and the power started uh, blame shifting. Well, this is in a way natural in a crisis. We need uh, a scapegoat. We need the origin of all evil, right? And in this case, it was also facilitated by the lack of transparency of, of Chinese uh, authorities. So um, in a way, uh, we had uh, very little information exactly on what exactly happened in Wuhan. We had Chinese whistleblowers uh, being put into jail, uh, which of course did not facilitate any communication and further transparency with other powers, right? So it was a bad start. And of course, there was a lot of mistrust against Chinese authorities uh, from before. So it was, I think that the, the crisis just catalyzed a lot of distrust and a lot of tensions uh, between uh, US and China, between EU and and China and so on. And this triangle, I think, just uh, evolves, uh, putting a light on how geopolitics is back again uh, in the game. So Nacho, what's your reading of this, uh, of, of China's controversial and assertive role during this pandemic? That's a very interesting question from the European Union point of view, because um, it's true, I, I mentioned, I, I, I already mentioned on, on, on this idea of of war of narratives that that, that, that Borrell high representatives have also stressed. Uh, but the point is that uh, at the same time that China 
is, uh, I mean, uh, increasingly um, um, strategic. No? Let, let's say, let, let, let's say that not that way. No, China, uh, uh, China is really concerned about the impact of 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 this of this crisis in economic and and geopolitical and also reputation terms. So perhaps because he's uh, worried, perhaps because he's nervous, uh, uh, perhaps because uh, China is realizing at the same time that the U.S. has abdicated its, its global leadership. The truth is that the China um, uh, is is trying to take advantage of 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 of, of this situation, but at the same time to try to not lose. Um, um, the, the the narrative about uh, who is responsible for for the the pandemic, who has managed the pandemic, and in this confrontation between uh, responsibilities, who I think that the European Union has to um, has to have very clear that uh, um, that. Nobody is going to win. I mean, in terms of the of the confrontation between the U.S. and China, nobody is going to win. That we don't want a uh, unipolar world or bipolar solutions, but that we want is multilateralism. And uh, the, the the problem is is that uh, China, um, the, the the idea that China has managed better the pandemic that there was something that that in particular during the, the during March and and perhaps April was trying to be underlined by the Chinese authorities, not that we have managed the, the, the pandemic and the Western democracies have been unable to do it. I think this is a, a risk, the idea that democracies are less capable than authoritarian states to manage the crisis, first point. And second, the idea that we have to be very careful about this increasingly strategic confrontation between China and US and try not, not to take sides and at the same time to be very clear that we are not that we are not halfway that we are closer to the us in terms of values and interests and the democratic model and but that at the same time uh, with donald trump in at the white house is not easy the transatlantic relation uh sure well i i think that there are two angles that we can see uh this from uh, the first angle is the external angle, and uh, China for the U.S. has been obviously involved in a trade war before the pandemic started, uh, which makes the blame game even more logic than, uh, you know, before. Um, and the for the EU, uh, China started being um, the strategic competitor since like last year. Um, obviously, we were in a, in a game of setting dependencies before the blame game started during the pandemic and because of the pandemic. So China needed to react. The other angle uh, that um, China needs to be uh, analyzed from is the internal angle. Uh, China has been for several years now um, involved in a restructuring process. Uh, that put pressure on its socioeconomics and its stability. So before the pandemic, we had socioeconomic problems uh, that were pretty visible within China. And because of these, China again needed to react. 
So obviously, there is not much transparency, not for us and not for the internal public of the Chinese government. Uh, there shouldn't be that considering uh, the, the ways that the Beijing government is handling issues. But in the same time, it is only natural that we see China reacting and trying to uh, make certain that both internally and externally, it keeps the power that it had before the crisis, the sanitary crisis began. So I think we're in a transition period, really, uh, when we are switching from geopolitics 1.0 to geopolitics 2.0, if you, if you like, uh, when dependencies are being obvious and they are being handled um, more politically than before. Um, and after this, we will really see a reassessment of each power gains. Miruna, some are talking about uh, a new Cold War referring to China and the U.S. And I have here some, some words by Donald Trump that he said a couple of days ago, and I think they, are, they speak by themselves. He said, this is worse than Pearl Harbor. This is worse than the World Trade Center. There's never been an attack like this. It could have been stopped in China. It should have been stopped right at the source, and it wasn't. Well, it's uh, interesting that this is very familiar uh, language for uh, Trump, and we all know that he likes to make uh, to use big metaphors and sometimes, of course, to exaggerate. And I believe this uh, this uh, type of language is part of this exaggeration that is part of his political brand. We should not forget that Donald Trump is now uh, getting ready for political campaign. We will have elections in the United States. And I think this is uh, really, in a way, a uh, very challenging moment to combine uh, <clears throat> political messages uh, targeting, of course, a U.S. Uh, uh, audience uh, and voters uh, particularly, uh, showing strong leadership and showing, you know, the things that uh, Trump voters want to see. And on the other hand, to be a leader, a global leader, and try to send messages that are uh, constructive for finding the solution. Uh, so on, on, I, I think it's not surprising to have this kind of really big statements. Uh, it is still early to talk about the Cold War. I, I wouldn't um, see it more than a trade war and maybe some, uh, um, some um, you know, uh, great power politics uh, remnants from the Cold War. But I think that we are living now in a totally different type of world uh, that will um, have a different form and not uh, the very simple one of the Cold War. On the other hand, the last idea that I wanted to say on this is that um, the first ones who uh, attacked and who considered the origin of the crisis uh, were the Chinese blaming the U.S. as using uh, this uh, uh, virus as part of their trade war. And of course, this was this came together with a lot of conspiracy theory. But on the other hand, it's important to note that there are um, uh, blame shifting strategies on both sides. So not only Trump uh, puts everything on the shoulders of uh, China, but on the other hand, uh, China did, uh, particularly in the beginning of the crisis, when they were very much affected, they did the same. So this shows uh, a total lack of trust. And at the, at the source of of, uh, global um, tensions is always lack of trust. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say uh, a Cold War, but it's 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 
obvious that coronavirus is is fostering um, power competition between Washington and, and Beijing and, 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 and much more ideological contestation. And, and this is, from the European Union perspective, this is very sad because um, uh, addressing the pandemic, well, like, like all other um, global challenges such as climate change or uh, terrorism, digital demography, require most international cooperation, more uh, institution and not less. And it is obvious that with, with US and China in this confrontation, is uh, we, we, we can't expect anything coming from United Nations, including, by the way, the, 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 the World Health Organization that is uh, put under, under pressure and under criticism by, by Donald Trump, uh, or uh, the G20. The G20 has not been mobilized at all uh, so far to, to, to deal with the crisis. Uh, so it is it's particularly complex for the European Union that precisely when multilateralism, global governance is more needed, is when the confrontation between China and the US, uh, not only on trade, also on terms of, of geopolitics in general, and also this ideological confrontation in the case of Trump connected to the election uh, this November, uh, well, it's, it's really, it's really a, a very, very bad uh, a scenario for the European Union because the European Union um, um, needs uh, a, a different climate of transatlantic relation and a different climate of uh, China attitude towards being more constructive to, to 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 global governance. But right now, there are no there, there is no condition for 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 for, for this. Antonio, are you, do you share Nacho's pessimism with this? Uh... Uh, power competition and 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 not being not being great for the EU to 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 be to play a key role. I mean pessimism, I do share. Um, the problem is that the pessimism is pretty much realistic for for us for us all, not only the EU but also the US and and China. Um, it's bottom line. It's uh, relating to the audience that each of the leaders have, and uh, we obviously uh, expected that Trump uh, say the things that he said because um, he refers to the public that uh, needs to be reassured. I don't think that he cares much about the U.S. being uh, or himself being a global leader um, because of the way that we have the U.S. now. Um, which is also troubled by socioeconomic issues. Um, it is no exception to the rule of um, the disparities between classes, disparities between the elite and the non-elite, which have, after all, caused Trump to come to power. Now, the big question mark is where does China stand on this issue of socioeconomic stability and how the EU will develop after uh, corona crisis in terms of disparities uh, and in terms of what these disparities are going to make the leaders uh, do next, uh, both um, in their public spe speeches, but also um, in terms of ideology, because that shapes uh, in, term, in turn economics and society after all. Uh, so it's all a circle. And yes, I do share pessimism. Uh, but I do think that there is ray of hope if the European leaders know how to react to all this and if 
at the end of the day, um, the European Union shows the power of cooperation. I don't know realistic how much that will, will happen, to be honest. So the power of cooperation, I, I imagine that uh, because I think China really, really likes uh, dealing bilaterally with each member states in the EU, because that way, of course, Europe is not as strong as it could be. So I'm thinking, for example, as uh, granting Huawei access to European markets. And, and, and until now, I don't see any unity in the EU in that regard. So do you see after this pandemic are you more conscious of the need of being united when dealing with with a power like like China? I, I really I really think that that uh, even the 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 supply of of of, of medical material uh, in the during the during during early April, the idea that all member states, in particular those more hit by the by the pandemic, no, Italy, France, Spain, Belgium, trying to to, to buy uh, the supply in China in a very competitive market. And when the commission decided, well, we try to make uh, economies of scale here, and we are going to uh, help member states to, to, to make um, a collective uh, supply. And, and, and then the, the, the capacity of the European Union to negotiate, and this is very particular, uh, but, but it's a very good example that to think strategically that when you uh, when you uh, create this synergy, this economy for scale, you are much stronger. And this is something that the European Union is doing on trade, always have done on trade, on trade negotiations. But now to to to, to also to think on in terms more strategic regarding not just uh, trade negotiation but also. Uh, industrial, technological, and a strategic relation with with China or with other uh, global powers. So the idea that during this crisis, uh, member states have realized how important it is to be united uh, when you are dealing with uh, a, a great powers such as China. Uh, it's also vulnerability that we are seeing um, in the dependency on China. So yes, the EU member states have seen how powerful it is uh, to act together, but in the same time, they have also seen how vulnerable they are uh, with regards to everything coming from China. So after uh, the sanitary crisis, I believe that a lot of the discussion uh, in terms of economics and in terms of uh, structurally uh, looking at the European Union market and national market is going to be how much vulnerable do we want to be um, to, with regards to any country, China in particular, because of the low costs uh, that we get products from China with. But it's this crisis, we should not forget that it's been a supply chain crisis at the very beginning. And we've seen protectionism and we've seen union. I don't know which one of these forces right now are going to prevail. I am ready to bet that there will be more protectionism and we are going to look to be less vulnerable. So for this final part, let's consider other non-traditional aspects of geopolitics, such as the evolution of perceptions of certain big powers 
seen as weaker or stronger than they really are. Let's consider the power of strategic communication, the role of research and universities in this crisis. So Minura, why, what is the perception? Why, why is the perception so relevant for geopolitical influence? Um, I think perceptions are vital during a crisis because it is uh, about how the other um, leaders uh, perceive you, how the other powers, and also how the markets uh, react after, based on these perceptions. So it's both uh, symbolical, political, and also it has a huge uh, uh, um, economic uh, impact, right? Uh, now the markets are uh, fluctuating very much because of the huge uncertainty. So uh, when uh, when a certain power is being blamed for not dealing with its own uh, problem at home, uh, of course, this uh, it's, uh, has uh, economic uh, implications. And uh, in the case of the EU, we have seen since the beginning of the crisis a huge uh, attack based on this information. And now the very recent uh, report published by the European External uh, Action Service in the uh, 20th of April uh, showed practically the source of this disinformation, which mainly uh, targeted uh, social media uh, and uh, uh, all these messages of distrust, showing that EU is not capable to uh, face the crisis, showing that uh, EU member states are having um, very different views on how to tackle the crisis. All of this together uh, create a certain public opinion. And this public opinion uh, is crucial, especially in uh, this pandemic, where um, uh, states have taken exceptional measures like keeping people at home and forcing um, closing of businesses and so on, which creates a lot of anger and a lot of fear. And this fear was very much catalyzed by this um, weaponized uh, disinformation strategies. Of course, they are not new. We all knew that uh, there are certain narratives based in uh, pro-Kremlin uh, actors. And now uh, EU report has, has shown that there is also uh, Chinese and Iranian um, disinformation campaigns. And it is very important that uh, Mr. Borrell um, mentioned to the public that there was uh, pressure put by China before EU published this report uh, because they didn't want uh, the report to be so straightforward in showing how uh, Chinese narratives tried to uh, deepen um, this distrust in the EU and, and practically propagate fake news. And of course, this is uh, any crisis comes together with a propaganda war, with a war in which fake perceptions of the reality are more important than reality. And in this case, when you have um, a lot of numbers and statistics and you have scientists that are overwhelmed by uh, the complexity of the issue, of course, it is very easy to invent uh, data and to uh, invent situations because nobody has time to check. So uh, in a most vulnerable situation like this pandemic, uh, we could also see the geopolitical uh, impact of this information and how it practically uh, targets weakening um, any actor. It's not just about the EU. I think all the actors are extremely vulnerable in this, but EU had the courage to show uh, in this report how Chinese um, uh, strategies have um, uh, propagated fake news uh, about the crisis. So, Nacho, how do we, how can the EU win this battle of perceptions that is so crucial in geopolitics uh, nowadays? 
Well, it's, it's particularly crucial in the in the neighborhood. Uh, I mean, European Union is not particularly interested in 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 having a a war of narrative with China itself, or with the U.S., or with well, perhaps with Russia. Uh, but but the, the real, I mean, the real battle, in my view, is uh, on the one hand domestically, it is important to convince the European citizens that the European Union is a is a global actor that uh, who may shape the the, the 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 international the international order. So uh, to 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 have the support of European citizens to the idea of a of a more uh, proactive European Union in the world, but at the same time, uh, if you if you think on on the regions in the vicinity, the surrounding regions in in the Western Balkans, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, and Middle East, and, and North Africa, I really think that that the European Union has to convince uh, that uh, it is an actor that m- may. Uh, uh, may help those countries to deal with the pandemic and to deal with the consequences of the pandemic. And what we see, we saw in Serbia, uh, it was particularly interesting. No, the the Serbian government uh, announcing that they are no longer interested in the European Union, uh, considering that they are a candidate to 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 join the European Union, and that China was the real actor. Well, the European Union has demonstrated that well in terms of 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 um real capacity to uh, uh to 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 try to to help on on ec- on the on health on economic on security on political dimension altogether uh may 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 have more contribute uh, a, 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 a bigger contribution than china in those regions i really think that the idea of the narrative of the democratic europe uh, non aggressive europe uh, an, an effective Europe dealing with health, dealing with the economic um, uh, consequences of, 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 the, of the coronavirus, and also the security dimension of this is crucial. It's crucial because otherwise, if, if, if China, if, if the idea that China is more powerful and more effective in those regions uh, or, or Russia, uh, this would be lethal for the European Union. Antonia, what's your what's your take on EU's capacity to shape narratives? I think that uh, the EU needs to invest in in this capacity, and I think uh, by investing in that, it needs to invest in critical infrastructure that has to do with education and with the health system. Uh, mainly integrating these uh, into a system as we've integrated uh, the common market uh, now. I don't know if we will be able to do that um, immediately or if at all, considering how this pandemic is going to shape the realities that we each live in our own countries in the EU. Um, meaning by that, uh, we have already uh, differences between classes that are showing during this pandemic um, at uh, the, the health uh, level, but also um, at the educational level. Uh, policies that are not necessarily coordinated, and I think the EU needs more coordination than ever uh, in addressing these disparities, because they are the ones that pose the the most risk to EU cohesion, if you you ask me. Uh, Also, 
Uh, on the bright side, I believe that we've done a lot of progress in the EU. We've shown that uh, a lot of things can be done rapidly. Work from home, anything that relates to online delivery services and all that. But we have to take into account that all those and all that progress has been unequal uh, from member state to member state, from community to community. And it is um, the way that we drive that uh, inequality and make it uh, less inequality and more solidarity, if you, if you will, uh, that actually says what kind of um, power the EU has in terms of shaping the narrative and making perceptions Right. I totally agree with this. I think uh, inequality is, is a key element in this uh, war. Uh, Nacho, do you want to have a, a last say before we, we close this? Just a final word that, well, if we are the champions of effective multilateralism or even the champions of principled pragmatisms, we, we must find a way to, to raise the, 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 uh, the voice of the European Union. Because if not, if, if, if we, the European, don't do that. Uh, uh, if we don't take the lead, uh, nobody else is going to do it. So that's that, that that's the point. That re there's a real demand in the world of the European Union to be a, a powerful actor, capable to shape the conversation. Because otherwise, the conversation is going to be shaped by uh, other actors that are uh, distant to our interests and values. All right, we are coming to an end. It's been very insightful talking to you, and I, I want to thank you for that. And I think we can all agree that this unprecedented crisis will change power dynamics. And let's hope that Europe is ready to sharpen its foreign policy capabilities to survive this corona, this post-corona world affairs. Miruna uh, Budnaru Troncota, Ignacio Molina, Antonia Colibasanu. Thank you. Stay safe. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all. Bye-bye. This was all for now. Europe After Corona is a series of podcasts promoted by Open EU Debate and produced by Agenda Publica. We will continue this conversation very soon because, yes, these lockdown days are slowly and finally coming to an end and we better be ready with answers. Stay tuned. <music>